Hey folks, this is Abel James, and thanks so much for joining us on Fat Burning Man, where we help you look, feel, and perform at your best. When was the last time you thought about the quality of the source of your water? You know, for a lot of the, the health nuts out there, it's easy to obsess about nutrition, how much you're eating, what you're eating, how little you're eating, how much you're exercising, but how many people are really paying attention to what's in their water, what's what's not in their water. Uh, today, we have one of my favorite guests, and, and I feel totally comfortable saying that. He's, he's definitely a wild man himself. His name is Arthur Haynes. He's the author of A New Path, uh, a book that is, I think, very much needed in today's world, That uh, that that gives us a bit of insight into what it would be like to... To live in the world of our ancestors, to think like our ancestors when it comes to food, nutrition, movement, lifestyle, the water we're drinking, and even a bit of spirituality too, but certainly not too much, just a little bit. Uh, but anyway, how can we feed and heal ourselves and our families while living in sync with the natural world? This is something that... Uh, Allison and I strive to do. I know a lot of folks in my family strive to do, and it's not something I invented. It's it's really something uh, that my my grandfather and even some folks before him. Uh, it was a way that they thought about the world: that you work with the land, you cooperate with the land, uh, you don't work against it. So anyway, Arthur Haynes has an extremely unique and informed perspective on all of this. He's a forager ancestral skills mentor, author, public speaker, and botanical researcher. He's also one of my mom's heroes because <laughs> she's an herbalist and nurse practitioner herself. But anyway, Arthur's the real deal. He actually had to cancel the first interview that we had scheduled for this show because he, he had to go bear hunting, you know, which is something that doesn't follow like Tuesday at 11 o'clock. You kind of have to follow different ryth rhythms uh, of the world and, and the seasons when you live this way, which is something that Arthur strives to do. So I think that was the best excuse ever for canceling a podcast interview. And fortunately, we were able to do it here today. So before we get to the interview, here's a review that just came in on iTunes. It's from Eric, and he says... In just a few days, it will be one year since I started the wild diet. I've lost 70 pounds. I went from a size 38 pants that fit snug to a 28 by 32. I have muscles that I never thought were possible, and I'm working on my final badge of fitness. My six-pack abs are coming. The podcasts are informative and help to motivate me. I'm a walking advertisement for Abel. Start listening and start getting healthy and lean. Oh, man. Eric, thank you so much for that note. In one year, that is exceptional progress. In fact, I, I think last time I measured my waist was somewhere around 30. Now yours is 28. So congratulations on being even thinner and more in shape than I am. Those, those six-pack abs, sometimes they might be a bit blurry, but don't worry about that. Uh, we've all got them under there someplace. So congratulations on all your progress. Thank you for leaving a note. I, it, you know, one of, the <laughs> one of the reasons I read them is because it makes me feel um, so good to do what we do. And it's one of the reasons to keep going because uh, trust me, it's not always easy, but uh, I'm, I'm so happy that you folks have been supporting us over the years and that we're able to do this with our lives. Allison and myself are are pretty much we've been doing this full time geez for for seven plus years now so thank you so much for that thank you for the reviews and comments don't forget to leave one wherever you might be watching or listening to this show uh and just to put it into perspective eric and everyone else who's listening uh 70 pounds losing 70 pounds in a year 70 pounds is what my yellow lab Bailey weighs so congratulations on using on losing a giant yellow lab uh, from your frame. We just launched something that we're really excited about called Wild Superfoods. And I've had a lot of questions about, you know, like what was the inspiration behind that? And the honest truth is it, these days, 
most people don't get all of the nutrients that they need from food alone. And uh, that includes myself, Allison, this is something that we've kind of learned over the years of doing this show and, and writing about health, is that we live in an imperfect world, yet uh, science and research is at a certain point where we know enough about uh, certain nutrients uh, to understand that we definitely need them and some we need on a regular basis. So uh, with Wild Superfoods, we've started off with, um, with four products. One is called Future Greens, which is a green uh, superfood powder, which you can throw into just water to drink as a real food uh, health supplement. We also have Mega Omegas, vitamin D stack and probiotic spheres. So if you're interested in any of those and you happen to live in the U.S., sorry, no international quite yet, um, then make sure to visit wildsuperfoods.com at this special little link with a forward slash save 128. Because if you go and uh, select the subscribe and save, you'll get 128 bucks off. Uh, so make sure to go to wildsuperfoods.com slash save 128. So S-A-V-E-1-2-8, and you'll get the deal. Since we're just getting started, we can only ship to the U.S. right now, but hopefully we'll be expanding in the years to come. And uh, one of the biggest reasons we're doing this, and I do appreciate you entertaining the fact that that we're advertising for our own products, but at the same time, this is the way that we're supporting the show and the way that we're keeping external outside sponsors and corporate overlords away from this show and away from the message because I think the truth is, it seems to be a rare thing these days and we're trying to get as close as we possibly can. So if you'd like to support the show, please leave a review and, and check out wildsuperfoods.com. And if you're interested in any of our um, educational products, our cooking classes, our meal plans, and all of that, be sure to visit fatburningman.com. Sign up for our newsletter, and I'll send you a free seven-day meal plan and quick start guide to get you rolling right away. All right, on to the show with Arthur Haynes. You're about to learn the critical differences between creators and consumers, how food can be medicine, especially if you're growing or foraging it for yourself, the risks and dangers of drinking tap water, and tons more. Let's go hang out with Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Wild Superfoods. Big news. After three plus years of nonstop tasting and testing, our brand new real food health supplements from Wild Superfoods are finally ready for you. Now, what does wild mean anyway? Well, we work with the laws of nature, not against them. We avoid anything artificial, genetically modified, or overly processed. Whether you need real food nutrition from fruits, veggies, and stress-fighting adaptogens in future greens, vitamins from vitamin D stack, balanced omegas in mega omegas, or immune-boosting probiotics in probiotic spheres, we have got you covered. Our shelf-stable nutraceuticals are of uncompromising quality, and they're convenient options for traveling, camping, emergency and disaster preparedness, as well as daily supplementation for optimal health. At Wild Superfoods, each of our products is lab tested for purity and potency and formulated according to the latest cutting edge developments in research, science, and medicine. Guaranteed nutrition no matter where you are. That's our promise to you, and we look forward to hearing how you like Wild Superfoods. And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can save over 80 bucks on a one-time purchase or save over $128 when you select subscribe and save. On top of that, you'll get free access to our coaching and meal planning community, the Fat Burning Tribe, which is normally $27 a month. All you have to do is head on over to wildsuperfoods.com. All you have to do, type it in right now into that menu bar on your phone, tablet, computer, or anything else, VR goggles you might be using right now. Just check out wildsuperfoods.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you there. All right, folks, Arthur Haynes is a forager, ancestral skills mentor, author, public speaker, and botanical researcher. Arthur runs the Delta Institute of Natural History in Canton, Maine, where he teaches human ecology, focusing on the values of foraging, wild crafting medicine, and primitive living skills. He continues to spend a great deal of his free time practicing his skills 
as a modern hunter-gatherer. Thank you so much for coming on the show again, Arthur. Hey, well, thanks so much for having me. And I just, I'd love to let everybody know that I had to reschedule a couple of times because of various things. And uh, you guys uh, kept being super polite and saying, oh yeah, no problem. And I just really appreciate your willingness to work with this uh, natural schedule up here that doesn't go by our weekly work schedule sometimes. Sure, so I appreciate that. Oh, well, I appreciate <laughs> your work. You're worth it. And uh, you had the best excuse I think I've ever heard for, for canceling an interview on this show. And I'll just tell you folks who are listening. He went bear hunting with Daniel Vitalis, no less. <laughs> so tell us, tell us how that went. It, it, it's funny to think about the difference between those two days and, and the way that you could have. Spent oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, bear hunting is one of those things that conjures up uh, a lot of emotions for people because yeah. um, some of the ways that bear are acquired well just to back up very quickly only about seven percent of the bear that are taken in the state of Maine are actually taken just observing a bear by happenstance and shooting it with some method whether that be bow rifle or whatever mm -hmm. and so bears are so wary and so hard to come by despite the fact that they're not rare on our landscape at all that people use methods like baiting and trapping mm -hmm. to you know essentially access these animals for food um and baiting has all kinds of issues because it habituates them to human food right. they're often using rancid vegetable oil and pastries and things that they can get in abundance um trapping has its own issues that i don't like um you know lethal traps that kill immediately are different to me, but those mm -hmm. that just hold an animal for some period of time have no interest in. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's hounding where the, where the dogs are trained to pick up the scent of the animal and allow humans to follow that scent because we can't, we can't, uh, envision what we're smelling in the way these dogs can. It's right. absolutely amazing. And so that's what was used on this particular hunt. And that's something that Daniel helped connect me to some folks that were visiting from Wisconsin. Wow. And so uh, before we started recording this interview, you mentioned that the, the first feeling was grief. Oh, absolutely. I, I actually put out a, a little post on social media about this. What we often see when a hunter takes an animal, and it's frequently things like deer or wild turkey, moose, we see a hunter who's standing over the animal with this giant smile on their face, um, sometimes with the weapon they use with this dead animal. And I totally understand that. There is a, a level of excitement that comes with this feeling of accomplishment. Because in some cases, you may have been tracking um, an animal for a long while to find out where its habits are. Mm -hmm. You've potentially set up a tree stand or you have some place that is a natural hide and it may have taken two weeks for this animal to finally walk by. Um, it, it, it is a sense of accomplishment. What I personally have a hard time with is there only seems to be the excitement and there's none of the grief that comes with the fact that this beautiful animal will never walk this earth again, at least not in that form. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there is this kind of sense of reincarnation because this animal that becomes our food becomes our body tissues. Right. You know, it, it simply has a changed form, if you will. And it's one of the reasons why I like hunting and foraging and even securing my own spring water, because I want to have a personal relationship as best as possible with these things that sustain me. Um, I don't want industry doing that to any degree if I can help it. Mm -hmm. um, but like all people, we have some connection to industrial foods. I don't want to make like we're hunter gatherers living on a 100 percent wild diet. Sure. Of, you know, but we do get to eat a lot of wild food and it's what feels really special to us, much in the way of the people who grow their own food feel that really awesome connection to those plants because they developed a relationship. And so, yeah, uh, the first first few days I experienced grief, uh, which eventually becomes uh, a gratitude for the animal mm -hmm. and, you know, some some excitement as well, too. But, um, yeah, I just never post pictures of me you know, glooming over the animal kind of thing. Right. It there's for me, and I'm not talking for anybody else. I'm not judging, but for me, it feels disrespectful. Yeah. Well, and, and if you contrast posting a, a picture of, of the corpse of an animal, you just 
killed on social media, for example, if you contrast that to what our ancestors may have done, how, how does that look to you? Like, what, what's the difference? Oh, man, I mean, it, it's, it's so completely different. And of course, this varies for every hunter-gatherer group that we could discuss. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, when a hunter came back with a kill, you had um, mock shaming to prevent an ego inflation. Yeah. That animal is really small. It's not going to feed anybody, even though, of course, underlying this, everyone was extremely happy. Um, you had, in some groups, the females disperse the meat so that the hunters who were frequently male had no say in who got what as as a a kind of gender equality to make sure that it's not one successful hunter feeding their friends the biggest portions of meat. Uh, In the Jujuasi, you have this great example where it was the owner of the arrow is the one who dispersed the meat Hmm. and a hunter's quiver may be filled with any number of people's arrows. I mean, you could uh, not just, you know, in um, uh, in theory, but in actuality, a crippled person who was incapable of hunting could still manufacture arrows and could be responsible for distributing the meat. So you, you had all of these things in place that were to combat ego hmm. within a hunter-gatherer community. How does social media combat ego? <laughs> That's not a very good question, but I want to hear your response anyway. (laughs) I mostly only see inflation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, and ego is important today because we, whether we want to admit it or not, we are competing. We're competing uh, with people who live in our own town for limited resources. Mm -hmm. We're competing to let people know that we have something to offer. And this is the system that's been set up. And I'm not claiming that individuals operating within it are doing anything wrong. What else are you supposed to do? Um, But yeah, we, we have a very different system set up and it has some it has some cool strengths and it has some pretty serious drawbacks. And I just wish we had a way to get mostly the cool strengths. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do too. And perhaps we, we will see something happen in the next few years as, as uh, virtual reality and some of these more advanced technologies are hitting, especially for the younger generations. And that's a whole other can of worms that, that we could get into. But I think my, my point is, is, is that, it's so important that we revisit the the knowledge and intelligence and intuition of our ancestors in a time when we're being taught that that this is progress, that technology is helping us and supporting us. Um, if we just take a little step back and look at the difference once again between where we're at now or certainly where we're going and uh, and our ancestors, I mean, our ancestors didn't need flying cars. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> right. It it is. Uh, it's definitely really interesting uh, when you think about the whole uh, the whole suite of issues. I mean, what we used to have. I mean, Homo sapiens has always been a tool user. It's part of our biological norm. It's who we are. But the first tools, and this is something that uh, Stephen Jenkinson has has said. The first tools and even many later tools during hunter-gatherer lives were essentially just extensions of our body, but our modern tool sets, the machines, the automation, um, the vehicles, they're extensions of our will. Hmm. And when our wills are not connected to the ecology of the places we live, we unfortunately end up seeing... Uh, ecocide, we see a decline in the health of people. And mm-hmm. I think yourself and many other folks would like to see um, that improvement in physical health as, a, as a, maybe a starting place. I don't want to speak for you, but sure. I just see personal health as really important because if you don't fix your own health, you, you can't possibly have the wherewithal, the energy, the awareness to be worrying about anybody else's health in your family, your community, on your landscape. Sure. And so, yeah, to me, it's really important. We're, we're in this day and age where we believe we can transcend our biology. Yes. 
Right. We really believe that, you know, when it comes to animals, you know, take the moose, for example, here, a species that lives in this really water rich environment. No one would ever consider moving it to the desert. It would last days and, and die. It's just not adapted to that climate. But yet we somehow feel that we can always um, adjust what we drink, what we eat, mm -hmm. the type of personal interactions that we have without any consequences. And fortunately, uh, there are folks like you who know that there are consequences when we when we change too much, too fast. Yeah. And, and to your point, when you lack health or when you are ill, it's not just that. It really ca starts cascading to other parts of, of your life or, or relationships around you. And so um, I, I don't think health should be... Uh, treated as much as the vanity thing as it seems to be as uh, in, in, instead perhaps it should be thought of as, as you describe in your your books self-reliance having your health is is a responsibility isn't it it is. Um, it, it might be one of the most important things you can do uh, because through being healthy, you're also protecting your genome, something that you pass on to the next generation. I mean, we're always thinking of what's the condition of the land that we pass on. But when you pass on poor epigenetic function, you're setting the next generation up for poor health. And we know that one of the ways that we preserve this genetic expression, healthy genetic expression, is through our diet, our movement, our lifestyles, um, the people that we surround ourselves with, the time outdoors that we have, and so on. Um, yeah, I just think we're not just passing on a land, but we're passing on a condition of DNA expression that mm. is uh, really important to consider when we're eating junk food or sitting down to a whole food diet. It, it seems like things are changing even faster. I remember when I kind of first got involved in this whole, when I started this show in, the, in like 2010, 2011, it seemed like things were getting better. I don't know if that was an illusion, but in, in the years since, it does seem that that the message has been perverted or distorted once again. And, and a lot of people have, have almost given up again. Is that something that you're feeling as well? No, I totally, uh, I don't know if it's an artifact of the circles I hang out with. Mm -hmm. uh, I have no idea, but we see these pendulum swings and everything. It can be yeah. politics. It can be um, identity politics. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. And, it did seem that there was a host of people who were like, I really want to uh, try to focus on, say, organically raised foods or trying to get plastic packaging out of my diet. Mm -hmm. And then you start running into that. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter what we do. There's all this bad stuff. I'm just going to give up. Mm -hmm. um, and I just sort of I really feel obviously that we don't ever give up. It's how we we demonstrate one of our core values is how resilient we are against these really their their health threats that industry poses. Right. And there's a lot at stake, and that includes the next generation, but also us and how much we can enjoy our lives. So, I'm I'm totally with you. I have seen that, and uh, I don't I don't know if that's what everyone's witnessing, but definitely have seen it. Well, it, it just highlights the the point that we we do need to. I don't want to say go back to basics because there's really nothing basic about uh, what what you do, and not not to say that it's complicated either. But it's just a whole different way of thinking about a lifestyle. Like one thing that you touch upon in 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 your book is the idea of uh, creator versus consumer. And I think that's one thing that we have seen change in, in even the years that I've, I've been talking about as, as Apple takes away the headphone jacks and, and all these other companies start taking away all the jacks. You can't create on these devices, these tools anymore. You can consume, you could take selfies, but it's much more difficult to yeah. create something <laughs> of lasting value. Um, right. Whereas like how many different things, for example, would our ancestors have been creating, whittling, um, just making out in the field? Like, could you I, I remember you describe in the book, um, I, I think it's basically someone from from Western culture, all of the crap that they have to bring into the backcountry with their backpacks and their tools and their what have you. Whereas indigenous people just kind of go out there and make what they need. 
Yeah, they they had that autonomy, that mm-hmm. that complete sovereignty, um, and it often gets defined. And I really love describing describing it in this way as an original affluence. You had yeah. all of your needs. Not necessarily all of your wants, but all of your needs met by you or somebody that you have known your entire life. Mm -hmm. These really tight-knit networks of people who understood the ecology of their place. They could feed themselves, heal themselves. And and let's not pretend that it was idyllic and I I just feel like we need to get this out there. I mean, they had extreme weather. It wasn't that there were never droughts and things to be concerned with, large mammals that could harm them. And and we could go on further. But at the same time, let's keep in mind that we saw a near zero incidence of chronic disease in long lived hunter gatherer cultures. So they were doing something right. Mm -hmm. Cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, suicide, again, in intact cultures living with their uh, their communities intact, their wild food systems intact, we saw a near zero incidence of these types of uh, afflictions that are so fabulously common today. Um, you know, with, with some people experiencing two or more chronic diseases with this really high proportion of folks in the United States. I mean, we're at, um, what is it, one in two adults have some form of chronic disease going on now. Right. I mean, this is, but it's become the norm, so we simply don't question it, whereas our biological norm is high resilience to these things. Um, but yeah, I can only imagine what that must have felt like as someone who's been studying uh, for a long time how to feed myself and make things from the landscape. I'm, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still, we purchase uh, most of our clothing, we purchase a fair amount of food. I mean, yeah, we, we make some items, but we're still trying to get there and every increment feels so great. But uh, I can only imagine what it's like when you could be responsible for everything in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, no judgment against purchasing things. Um, we all need to do it, but there comes a point when you have to, you're literally trying to purchase your health. Yeah which puts you the whims of the people who essentially are able to create these products for health. I, I don't know. It's a it's a pretty distorted situation we find ourselves in. It is. And that might be using the term health generously <laughs> in a lot of cases, especially when we're talking about products, because most of the people who make products, it seems, are making products. They're not they're not trying to manufacture health for the people who are taking their products. They're trying to manufacture products and make as much money as possible because that's just kind of the system that we live in. But before we, we get ahead of ourselves, I do want to touch on this, that um, I, I think it's nasty, brutish, and short is the, the way that Western civilization describes indigenous civilizations, what they found with basically all the natives they found all across the world. It was this nasty, primitive... Uh, you know, civilization or not even civilization that we needed to civilize, that we needed to. Um, but how much of that is just marketing from the conquerors themselves such that we all just kind of live in this world without questioning it? It's. I think it's a really huge part. We have to establish um, a whole suite of myths to make sure that people in any given time always feel that this is the best time in human history, that you couldn't possibly do anything better. I mean, for us to pretend that we want to get up every day and have to drive to work and perhaps manufacture uh, some little trinket that gets exported someplace or work in an office cubicle and, and be at the whims of our supervisors and tax collectors and, you know, this just keeps going – and, and, and never question what it would be like to live by your own means. Uh, yeah, you have to develop these myths. And one of those myths is at least we live longer today. And while this is a little bit true, we have extended our lifespans by a small amount. What has been happening is uh, life expectancy 
was conflated with lifespan. We do know that there were a lot more deaths, particularly in the early years of hunter-gatherer lives. When you when your landscapes have not been expunged of large predators, for example, some died to these uh, to these animals that you shared your landscape with. And as a result, life expectancy, 35, you know, maybe late 30s, this kind of thing. But that wasn't the lifespan. We saw people living late 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s were not uncommon within hunter-gatherer groups. So we really haven't extended without disease. And that's right. Even in the advanced elderly, we still had health uh, mobility, because remember, most hunter-gatherer groups were nomadic, some covering massive distances. Um, two to 80 moves a year is wow. kind of this range that we typically saw. And at the point that somebody couldn't move, unfortunately, it became the end of their existence in this physical life. And so still agile and capable even in advanced age. And that's important, and we could discuss many other myths um, that again bolster our feelings of how amazing it is. But really, the the only thing to me, we've gained this phenomenal scientific understanding of the universe, but we've used it in ways that have not necessarily benefited humanity. Um, if we look at chronic disease rates and depression rates and suicide rates, we're clearly not uh, helping everything. But, you know, along with this scientific understanding, which is just just wonderful. We've created this really, these lopsided inequalities, this wealth disparity that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think if somebody takes a very fair look at what's happened, what we've really done is we've increased phenomenally comfort and convenience mm -hmm. for people living in financially affluent countries at the expense of many other things comfort and convenience to the point now that we have a hard time living without it um, because you become accustomed to it. You're, the range of physical extremes that you can tolerate sort of narrows down without that hormesis, without the exposure to the elements. And uh, yeah, I just comfort and convenience will be the death of us in some ways, it seems. Well, it will, won't it? Especially if you consider, and I try not to talk about topical things, but I feel comfortable enough saying that no matter when I'm talking about this, recent hurricanes will be a problem that have gotten worse. They've, they've affected me personally in, in Texas. They've affected my family in Florida. Um, pretty much anywhere you look now, um, we are being forced to become nomadic, whether we like it or not, at some point. You know, I, I lost um, everything in an apartment fire about 10 years ago. And I can say I was not oh, expecting whoa. that. <laughs> you know, it, I was right. feeling relatively comfortable and, and life was relatively convenient before that. It was not after. It was not for years after. I fell apart after because I was not self-reliant. I was not prepared to mm -hmm. exist in, in the world that I was confronted with without a place to live even, you know? So I, I don't think people who are, especially folks who are feeling comfortable and like their lives are convenient, I don't think most people realize how close they might be, in fact, to being the opposite of that. Could you comment on that at all? Well, yeah, and especially without those really tight-knit communities, um, we've sort of gone from, of course, there were nuclear families, but the nuclear families were embedded within a community. Mm -hmm. And if something befell you, your home, such as it was, and in a more, uh, I'll use primitive time only to denote a, a time period, but not an actual complexity of knowledge of the world, um, you were simply protected. You had others that were going to share their belongings, their food, uh, their space with you. Now um, we have a system where we sort of force you to depart your community. 
Mm-hmm. And you have to go someplace. You have to get an education such that you can compete or some type of marketable skill. If it's not a college education, it's a vocational, whatever the case might be. You may be states away from where you grew up, where you're surrounded by loved ones and friends that you've known for many years. Mm-hmm. You lose your apartment to a fire. And I don't know your situation, but you could have been completely surrounded by strangers at that time. Sure. Yeah, and what? What a scary feeling. Um, I fortunately have never had to survive a house fire. And I could only imagine how terrifying that be with with no like, oh, come in here. You can stay here as long as you need. You know, that that kind of caring community is something that we don't have in social media doesn't make up for it. Um, Yeah. And and when you at one time were able to create everything that you needed, anything that you lost for any reason could be replicated. Mm-hmm. Our problem is, you know, if this computer that we're using to have this conversation, if it breaks, I need to take it someplace to get repaired mm-hmm. or I need to buy a new one. I am completely dependent on other people for this. And it really stinks because I feel, you know, so much of this stuff Uh, I don't want to pretend this is a big conspiracy theory, but they're not designed to last. It's not necessarily planned obsolescence, but I'm not passing this computer on to my grandchild. (laughs) And, you know, and because of that, we're just stuck filling up landfills with stuff that's going to come back to haunt somebody when all of these endocrine disrupting materials break down and go out into the soil, the groundwater, the air. Um, I'm probably way past where you wanted to go with that. But again, I just see, I see consequences when we depart from our biological norms and our biological norm was a small band of people being able to live in, in complete dependence on their landscape, but not on people who live continents away, who Mm. supply them with food and goods they need for living. And yeah, we're in this really hard position. It's not necessarily going to be easy for people to correct that overnight. But I promise anyone who's listening to this interview, um, every step you make toward being able to retake skill sets that um, were possessed even by people just 50 years ago. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing feeling. <laughs> well, you get a lot more confidence and momentum in your own life, I think. Like something as silly as I did not like chopping wood when I was growing up. But now I do. <laughs> There's something yeah, funny yeah. about that. Um, I, I do. But <laughs> there aren't many, many people, uh, especially in adulthood, who um, question anymore whether they should be doing things like Because why would you chop wood when you can buy chopped wood? Um, but let me ask you that question. Why would you chop wood when you can buy chopped wood? Yeah, for me, it, it's it's become this. The sign of making it. You're successful when you not only pay other people to do work for you, but you forget how to do that work right. that you're paying people to do. Yeah. And so we have this really bizarre measure of success in that you can do next to none of the things that you need to be able to do anymore. Hmm. And be the most powerful at the same time. Yeah. Huh. Um, and And so for me, I want that original affluence as much as I can. And what we do here is we focus on food because what we do is we strategize. What are the things that we have to go to industry the most for? And when I say industry, I'm, I'm not putting a small, local, you know, family-owned farm. Those That's not what I'm talking about because those are, those are very valuable for communities around the country to have near them. But I'm talking about the supermarket where there's a big producer who's just not necessarily giving you um, – real deep nutrition anymore and taking your money for it. Mm -hmm. We know that we have to go to food the most. We go a little bit for medicine. We go for clothes occasionally. But there are some things that we almost never go to industry for 
um, you buy a home and you can live in it forever, mm-hmm. you know, your whole life if you wanted to. And so we focus a lot less on building shelters all over the landscape and getting really good with that and focus more on acquiring food because it's what we need industry for every single day, at least three times a day in most mm-hmm. cases. And, and so for us, that's what we want to do. And that whole thing about why do you want to do this? Well, there's sovereignty in it. We're detached from industry. We can't have people telling us what to do and how we should be doing it. We get to do what works for this place, which is really different for your place. We're right. in this time where we want homogenized solutions. And historically, every single group of Traditional people around the world, they ate differently, they mm-hmm. dressed differently, they had different creation stories because it's what worked for their landscape. And I don't just want the, the nutrient density of the food, but I want to be out moving my limb for the benefit of my immune system. Mm-hmm. I want conscientious sun exposure. I want access to the bright blue light of the day, which wakes me up so that I can sleep better at night. All of these things that people don't necessarily think about. So why do I want to chop my wood? You know, going back to your question, because I want that diversity of movement. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm raising my arms above my head (laughs) that day, and I want that physical workout. Sure, I don't want to split wood eight hours a day, five days a week. I'll admit it. Mm -hmm. But I do want to do it some of the time in my life. And you want to know how. I think that's what it is too, right? Like you don't want to forget how. Yeah. There is actually technique to splitting wood. Oh, yeah. It isn't just launch an accident. You can do it wrong. Um, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It was great. I recently had a student who was trying to split some wood and I said, would you like just a couple of pointers? And it had to do with lining the axe up on the grains and the way the rays of the wood um, grow out from where the core is. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh my God, I had no idea. I just thought you swung an axe. Yeah, yeah, you can do it very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So I can't believe it, but we are coming up on time. Um, I wanted to make sure that we talk about water a bit because I think that's a big blind spot for a lot of people. Um, and it can manifest in, in, in disease pretty quickly and prickly, pretty easily, but certainly over time. So can you talk maybe first about some of the risks, uh, inherent in drinking the water that most people drink, uh, just from the tap city water? Yeah. Um, I, I do think it's a bit of a blind spot because, we get accustomed to um, just doing what everyone else does, becoming essentially passive participants in an industrial society, and we don't question things. We don't question, we put chlorine in our water to kill pathogens, and we think that's the end of the story, but no one's discussing the fact that you have an elevated cancer risk. In fact, when you look at people who live in a chlorinated water supply versus those who don't, um, on average, it's a 97% increase in cancer rates. Wow. Now, that's something you would think that that you'd hear about, but not always. No, that's not really you how it works. You don't. You don't. You, we, we need to kill the pathogens. I'm not claiming that chlorine is all bad, sure. but many people do have access to water sources where chlorine is not required, springs that come up out of the ground from from clean sources. We also put fluoride in our water because we know that fluoride replaces calcium in our tissues and fluoride creates a much harder surface like the enamel of our teeth. Mm -hmm. And that gives us, uh, we believe at least, resistance to dental caries. The, The problem is fluoride needs to contact your teeth. There is no advantage to imbibing it, actually drinking it, because it goes past your teeth and then gets absorbed into your body. Absolutely no advantage. Fluoride is not needed by any physiological process. And of course, what they don't mention is we've got increased rates of ADHD and decreased IQ points small but a measurable difference in IQ scores of children who grow up in fluoridated versus non-fluoridated waters. We also have all kinds of various endocrine disrupting compounds that are leaching uh, into our water supply, uh, bisphenol A, 
uh, phthalates, and 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 a host of other things, uh, malleates, fumarates, and things. Some of these compounds are not even regulated mm -hmm. by any uh, U.S. agency. And these endocrine-disrupting compounds obviously create some pretty serious risk for both men and women. And, and not even just for humans, but we even see places where these are being dumped into rivers. We see distorted gender ratios in fish upstream versus downstream of these discharges. We start seeing intersex fish, which are not known upstream of these mills. Jeez. And one of the other things that we never even consider when it comes to city water, especially where they're having to essentially purify, clean, and recycle that water. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually get purified. And so all of the trace drugs that are being urinated and defecated out of our bodies, right, because we don't absorb everything that we take when we ingest a pill, is going into our water supply. So trace, mood-enhancing, anti-fertility, um, and uh, oh, we get analgesic compounds a lot. And we say, well, they're really trace. We don't have to worry about them. But no one has studied what subtherapeutic doses of drugs over our entire lifetime, what that actually does to us, not to, not to mention the antibiotics that are also in the waters. And, and let's not forget, chlorine is there to kill organisms in the water. It also kills organisms inside us. Mm -hmm. And so it can be harming our probiotic flora, though I've not uh, seen any research on that. It seems to stand to reason that that could be the case. Um, and I, every few years, I try to search for something on that. And if anybody knows, I want to see that research because I think it's a really serious risk that we should consider. But there's all these things going on with our industrial water supply that we completely take for granted. Um, water is a huge one. There are folks that have spoken on this a lot. Daniel Vitalis is an example of someone who sort of harped, and I mean this in a good way, on focusing on the quality of our water for a long time. Yeah. Uh, here we're blessed. Um, I'm in rural Maine, and we have access to springs that have filtered through uh, all of the sand and glacial deposit come up and when they surface, they're as clean as water that we can possibly access. And we collect that in glass containers in an inert material, something that isn't bioactive, essentially, mm -hmm. or at least chemically active, I guess I should say. And then it becomes bioactive when we ingest those yeah. plastic compounds that have leached into it. Um, I'm glad you brought up water because I think it's one of those things that we – we really forget about, we focus on a whole food diet, we focus on movement, and then we've got sports drinks out of plastic and so on and so forth without realizing over time we're increasing the risk of chronic disease, including cancer, um, as, as one of the really big risks that industrial water supplies to us. And, and one thing that is worth pointing out is how quickly we jump to conclusions about Oh, it's BPA free now. So this plastic is totally safe. You know, it's like somehow everyone just decided that without asking, well, what was it replaced with? Is this plastic safe? Could you comment on that? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because you do in fact uh, the BPA, the bisphenol A, uh performed a function. Mm -hmm. And you can't just take it out. It's, you know, I, I like using the analogy that I'm going to take the yeast out of the bread. Well, the bread won't rise. It doesn't become bread anymore. You have to replace it with another leavening agent. Mm -hmm. And these plasticizer compounds, you have to replace it with something. So they replaced it with BPS and BPAF. So these are similar class of compounds. And what we did is we just made some exchanges. It turns out that their endocrine disrupting ability is just a little bit less. Mm -hmm. It's still present but it's reduced a little bit, but they last much longer in the environment so they can wreak their harm oh, longer. So we didn't really get an improvement, but the consumer said, oh, okay, we're done. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we just need to, like we launched headlong into this dependence on plastic before we ever even thought, what are the ramifications of this? I mean, we do this as modern humans a lot with technology changing so fast. You're born into one technology and it's gone through several iterations in your lifetime such that as an 
as an older person, you, you can't possibly understand what the young people are doing. And we did this with plastic and it's coming back to really haunt us. I mean, we're now noticing microplastics in our ocean, these microscopic particles fed on by the shellfish that used to be this amazing source of food where we got selenium and DHA and zinc and all of these things that men and women need for vital health, except these tiny little plastic particles turn out to absorb many of these uh, environmental toxins. So here, they're going back into our food supply and we're consuming them. We just thought they were going out into the ocean and we were good. Yeah. And uh, that's not the case. And you're right, we never asked what did they replace the bisphenol compound with. It was just something else that's pretty much just as bad. Why is it so easy for us to say, okay, they solved this one, I don't have to worry about it anymore? Well, we believe in the technological utopia, Mm. right? We really do believe that technology is going to fix everything. And it's sort of, it's creepily similar to this, you know, religious figure that's also going to come and save us. We've just, we've replaced whatever gods that we used or in the monotheistic religion, we replaced Jesus with technology. The robots and will it's save gonna us. Fix it. <laughs> I think yeah. it's time to watch Terminator again, guys. <laughs> yeah, for real. Watch this and see what happens. Um, but I, I really do think we, we firmly believe that technology will come and rescue us. And the reality is every single technological fix that has ever been created had some consequences. You name it, I mean, in some cases, you may not be willing to accept it, but we came up with the Haber-Bosch method for producing nitrogen from natural gas. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now that's all running off into the Gulf of Mexico and the Mississippi River drainage, and we get these massive die-offs as a result. Or we create life-saving medicine. What is the drawback to that? 7.3 billion people and rising. We will, no matter what, hit a point where we have some type of catastrophic collapse. I'm not a gloom and doom type person. I'm very hopeful. But when we just keep thinking, let's party (laughs) and let technology deal with this, we're heading for something really serious. Um, And anyone who is a parent or has young ones that they love or a landscape that they're deeply connected to, I mean, this is worth grieving for Um, because, I mean, I want everyone to be able to experience the health and the sights and sounds and everything that we get to experience um, in the same or better shape. And, uh, yeah, technology isn't going to fix us. What it's actually doing is just postponing the problem. Mm. Yeah, we don't need to be saved as much as we need to take responsibility (laughs) again, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Abel. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) And and there's so much that we could talk about. Uh, Maybe just one more thing. The separation and and dominion over nature, I think. Let's, Let's just talk just a little bit more about that, because that is in some ways unique to our culture, the Western culture, right? It's not pervasive forever through history at all. Um, Could you maybe describe what it's like to not feel like that, divorced from nature? Yeah, maybe I'll share a story. We recently had a couple um, show up here at Wilder Waters Community, which is uh, where I'm parked right now. And what we're trying to do is to reestablish some sense of community. Um, I will tell you it's extremely difficult because in addition to, uh, let's say, forgetting how to identify wild plants for food, we have also forgotten how to live together, how to have a village mind, and how to make sure that the ego doesn't get in the way of the disputes, which always arise in any community no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have a couple... Uh, show up here and they're talking about permaculture and agriculture and how through these various authors have figured out ways that if we plant fruit trees through the forest and if we use these things in our streams and if we grow these things here that we can now support over 20 billion people on the planet and what a wonderful thing that would be and it's like the person is not even aware 
you are simply wanting to force the world to produce for you, Hmm. right? You're forcing it to do what you want so there can simply be more people who want to force it to do what it wants and so, or what they want and so on and so forth. And the, the strong difference with you, when you look at true hunter gatherers, those that had not either adopted or been forced into agriculture by nearby groups that had greater numbers than them, um, you saw a participation mindset. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about forcing the world to produce. It was about participating with the abundant food resources and knowing how to, through a long time of living in that place and making mistakes, mm-hmm. but working out the kinks in their living system, being able to truly sustainably live in that place. Sustainable is one of those buzzwords now people talk about, you know. This is sustainable, and I always want to ask, what is it you're sustaining? <laughs> Are you continuing to sustain <laughs> good, the world's sixth question. major extinction event? That's not really sustainable, right. um, but you get my point. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's really different because when you go out and – we're going to roam the landscape today looking for uh, edible mushrooms or we're going to go uh, as we do in September and harvest wild rice from these massive rice beds that uh, occur here in Maine. And while we do it, we'll use methods that we spread the fertile grains around too, mm-hmm. so that we propagate mm-hmm. those rice beds. Uh, it's a really different feeling than forcing the world to make more food so that we can have more people. Yeah. Um, it's something that almost needs to be experienced. And I, I'll say, I wish I could articulate the vision better to you. Um, because I feel like if I could do a better job here, people would understand what a comforting feeling it is to know virtually everything that you look at on your landscape. Uh, we can't all do that. And we don't necessarily, we need lots of different expertises right now for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, that's one of them that we need to, uh, foster again. I am certainly not even close to your level walking in the woods and recognizing different plants, but I can speak to the fact that even if you only recognize a few, especially if they're edible, there is a whole lot of satisfaction that you get from that. And, and especially in that part of the world, growing up in New Hampshire behind our house, especially as a kid, we had wild cranberries, those tiny little strawberries, blueberries, huckleberries. We had some grapes behind the house. We had some pears, some apple trees, uh, an old peach tree that fell down. And it was just, you know, what it did not feel unusual at the time because that's what being a kid was. And it was all I knew. But what a rare experience to imagine now, especially in in other parts of the country and world. Yeah, and how important it was to you. I mean, you still have those memories. Yes. Of all of the things that we forget Mm -hmm. growing up, those haven't been forgotten. And and not to mention, um, and a topic for another time, but, you know, we're talking about, especially when it comes to phytochemistry and beneficial plant compounds, you're talking about the best food in the world that that you were exposed to as a young person. Even if it was only every once in a while, you still have that memory of how uh, amazing that was. Yeah, we're really lucky here in the Northeast. And I think many states um, have their... uh, wonderful Edens. They're, they're mm-hmm. places that have not been developed too much. Um, and, and finding those places and, and finding someone that can help you safely interact with those places and, and as importantly, sustainably interact with those places so that we don't just become another taker. Mm-hmm. Um, but we learn how to gather at a time that we can actually help spread yeah. Um, as just one simple example of how we sustainably harvest as opposed to just being a taker. Um, it's, it's not complicated, but there aren't simple rules. You have to learn it for this plant and for this plant and for this one independently sometimes. But um, yeah, I totally I, I totally uh, hear you because I have even though I was not born into a foraging family, um, all of those same species that you just mentioned were in my childhood as well oh, and things cool. that we did as kids. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Well, anyway, we're out of time, but um, I would like to recommend uh, your new book, A New Path, um, to everyone who's watching and listening to this right now. It is one of my favorite books 
that I've read this year. Um, I think it's it's very much needed. It's a well-balanced book. Um, Arthur, before we go, could you tell folks where to find you, where to find the book, and a little bit more about what you cover in this particular book? Oh, thanks, Abel. Yeah, um, e- I'm easiest to find probably at just ArthurHaines.com, my website, and obviously I have a you have to be present on social media to some degree, although I'll just warn people I'm there. Um, but there are times of the year where our wild food harvests take priority. So sometimes I'm slow to respond on social media. But I'll sometimes. Do, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll do my best to get back to people. Um, but what I tried to make a case for in a new path is that we need a new path and one that doesn't ignore our evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. One that essentially says we're mammals, we do have biological norms, and despite the fact we come from all over the world, we have remarkable similarities. Um, not necessarily in the amount of carbohydrates versus fat versus protein that we ate. Um, you know, there are differences in different places, but the fact is, is that we consumed all of them from omnivorous sources. It's just one example. This was a unifying biological norm that we have. And as I was mentioning, uh, before the interview started, Um, It's not, I don't mean to make it comprehensive, but I was trying to make it more holistic. So instead of just discussing diet or diet and movement, I wanted to discuss diet, movement, water, uh, medicine, hormesis, community, nature exposure, primitive skills, and what we used to accomplish with those things, um, and and so on and so forth. So it became uh, a much at least bigger expression of what humans need for health. Um, There's more chapters I would like to write, particularly on ancestral child rearing and things like that, but that's coming at a later date. Um, But I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to to kind of present what a new path is about, because I don't think there are many books like it. But to be clear, you know, I stand on the shoulders of anthropologists who did a lot of painstaking work. Um, folks like, you know, um, Katie Bowman and others who are doing all this really wonderful work looking at what our modern shoes do to our bodies right. and, our, and the lack of movement diversity and so on and so forth. So this is not all my original thought per se. I try to draw on that work and summarize it and then direct people to their work so they can get more detailed information if they want to. I'm just trying to put a lot of information in one place for people so they have a little bit more of a, a reference that they could go to. Yeah, if you want a, a human alternative that's based in history that might make you feel a little bit more yourself and and certainly help you question everything then definitely check out arthur's new book a new path really enjoyed it once again and arthur thank you so much for coming on the show you're welcome anytime hey thanks it was really great talking with you again abel this episode is brought to you by wild superfoods and listeners like you Whether you're looking to drop a few pounds, maximize performance for your next competition, or simply stay young and energetic, you need a name you can trust. That's why my wife Allison and I created Wild Superfoods. Our nutraceuticals and cutting-edge health supplements are literally the products we've been taking ourselves daily to upgrade our nutrition and optimize our health for the past three-plus years. And we're extremely excited to say Wild Superfoods is finally ready for you with much more to come. When you buy from Wild Superfoods, you're supporting a small family business, not a massive faceless corporation. We don't have any investors or stockholders to please, so our priority is you. We want to help you become as healthy as you possibly can be. Also, starting our own family company, it's kind of cool, has made it so we can create these shows for you without outside sponsors clouding our message of health. So if you believe in what we do, please check out Wild Superfoods. We think you'll dig it. And as a listener of Fat Burning Man, you can save over $80 on a one-time purchase or save over $128 when you select the subscribe and save option. Also, you can get free access with subscribe and save to our Fat Burning Tribe coaching and meal planning community. 
That place is awesome. I'll see you in there. It's usually at least $27 a month. So check out Subscribe and Save from Wild Superfoods if you want to get the tribe for free. We think you'll like it. So all you have to do is head on over to wildsuperfoods.com to order your very own health-boosting goodies for a big-time discount. One more time, that's wildsuperfoods.com. Thanks again for listening. Well, hey there, listener. This is Abel one more time, and I just want to say thank you for listening to this episode of the Fat-Burning Man Show. If you liked it, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you might be listening to or watching this show right now. And if you have a second, please leave me a quick review for the Fat-Burning Man Show. I read every single one of them, and every time you leave a review, it gives us a little boost in the rankings, and that helps other people find this show. And if you can think of someone else who might enjoy and benefit from this free show, please take a second to share it with a friend or a family member. And if they're like, what is this fat-burning man thing? That's a really silly name. You could be like, you're right, but here's the deal. We've recorded over 250 episodes of the Fat-Burning Man Show with thought leaders in health from all over the world. And so far, we've won four awards, hitting number one in health in more than eight countries internationally. We have more than 30 million downloads already, but we're just getting started. I can't believe any of this, by the way, and couldn't do any of this without you. So thanks once again. But here's some more good news. You can download and listen to every single episode of the Fat-Burning Man Show for free with zero outside advertisements, no outside sponsors, and no corporate overlords. All you have to do is type in fatburningman.com. I'll give you a a second here just to type it in. And you'll get all the show notes, transcripts, and video and audio versions for all the past episodes of the Fat Burning Man Show for free. Better yet, enter your email at fatburningman.com, sign up for my newsletter, and I'll even send you a quick start guide so you can take your health into your own hands right now along with a few of our ridiculously tasty recipes as a special thanks for signing up. Once again, just go to fatburningman.com right now. Enter your best email to get your free goodies with a bonus surprise straight to your inbox. This is Abel James signing off. Thank you so much for listening once again and have a great week.